And the beauty of a marketplace is that I get to choose my values. I get to pursue my values. I get to use my mind to figure out what my values are. There's no way for a central planner, there's no way for somebody else to pick values for me. Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special. I'm really eager and excited to welcome to the show Yaron Brook. Yaron is the head of the Ayn Rand Institute and also the host of the Yaron Brook podcast, the Yaron Brook Show. So, Yaron, thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad we finally got uh, got hooked up. I got to tell great. you, the, the, the <laughs> objectivists in the crowd have been pressuring me for literally years to have Yaron. And I kept saying, like, I have no objection to talking to objectivists. In fact, I have a lot of sympathies with objectivists. Yeah, so let's, yeah. let's just jump right in. Absolutely. Why don't, why don't we start from kind of your personal history. How did you become an objectivist? How did you get into this? So uh, when I was 16, I grew up in Israel. So when I was 16, I was, I was in Israel, living in Israel. And as most Israelis of my generation, I was a collectivist, a uh, tribalist. Uh, you know, I was waiting for the grenade to, to, so I could jump on the grenade to, for, the, for the Jewish cause. And then I was a socialist, as I think everybody in my generation growing up. This is before Begin had ever won an election. The socialists had won every election. And I'm, I'm having a conversation with a friend, and he, sa- he starts spouting these kind of capitalist ideas. And I go, where are you getting this nonsense from? And he takes out a book, and he hands me Atlas Shrugged. And I read Atlas Shrugged, and it took me months to read Atlas Shrugged, because I fought it. I, I did not want to believe what she was saying. I did not want to believe this was true. She challenged pretty much everything I believed in. And by the end of the book, she had won. And I was, uh, I was hooked. And from there... I picked up every single book I could. In Israel, it was hard in those days. There was no internet. There was no way to connect to anybody else who, who had these ideas. Uh, so I picked up every book I could, read everything, and I really spent the last 40 years studying her ideas. So instead of me trying to sum up what I think objectivism is, I have the expert here. So why don't you sort of nutshell for folks who may not know what objectivism is, which is a fancy name for a sort of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Yes. What exactly is objectivism? Sure. So it's a, it's a philosophy based on the principle that Existence exists. Things are what they are. Very Aristotelian. A is A, the law of identity, law of causality. It's not made up. There's no creator that, that you know, regulates the existence. It just is what it is. And we, as human beings, have the tool to, to know reality. And that tool is reason. We don't know about reality through our emotions. We don't know through a revelation. We know reality through our reasoning capacity. And of course, who reasons? Well, only individuals can reason. There's no collective consciousness any more than there's a collective stomach. You can't eat for me. You can't think for me. So we have to think for ourselves. And what is, the, what is the, then the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to live for yourself, to, to, to live the best life you can and make the most of your own life, to, to live a happy life in the end, not sacrificing to other people your values and not asking other people to sacrifice to you, but to, to rationally live the best life you can for yourself. And what is the only political system that leaves you free to make decisions about the rational values that you seek to pursue in pursuit of your happiness? Well, the only system that leaves you free to do that is capitalism, the system that protects our individual rights, our right to act freely. So existence exists, reason is our means of survival, uh, egoism as a morality, and capitalism is the only social political system 
that allows egoistic people really to, to be egoist, to, to go out there and pursue their values. So in a second, I want to ask you about the areas where we agree, which is largely in the free market area. Sure. I think that sure. Ayn Rand's description of the markets and her description of how capitalism works and the creative impulse that is inherent to most human beings, I think that is actually quite beautiful. And I want to ask you to expound on that in just sure. a second. Sure. But first, these days, a lot of workplaces offer employees some pretty nice perks. Here at The Daily Wire, we have a kitchen. We have all sorts of snacks. Also, sometimes we even let our employees go home. I mean, we are just full of perks that way. One of those perks at some companies is even life insurance, but you don't want to rely on workplace life insurance. This is where Policy Genius comes in. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find the right amount of coverage at the best possible price. The Policy Genius team can look at your workplace life insurance policy and then help you decide what else you might need and what you don't. Policy Genius doesn't just do life insurance, they also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So remember, Workplace life insurance policies, kind of like workplace snacks. Better than nothing, not quite good enough. Head on over to policygenius.com today. Find out how to supplement your workplace life insurance and better protect your family. Policy Genius, it's like a buffet made of life insurance. What could be more delicious than that? Also, guys, just be an adult. Go get some life insurance for yourself. The fact is, if you leave your family bereft and poor, that's going to be on you. So why don't you just go be a responsible human being? I know we're talking about selfishness and self-interest. It's in your self-interest to provide for your family because you care about them, don't you? I mean, they're still your family. PolicyGenius.com. Okay, so let's talk about the free market philosophy sure. because when people think of Ayn Rand, particularly in American politics, they tend to think specifically in the economic context. They, they think, okay, greed is good. Gordon Gekko, selfishness <laughs> is a virtue. And they think that that is a villainous conceit, that yes. basically the only yes. way that, that we can live in a society together is not to be selfish. And particularly, they hold this is true in the, in the realm of economics. You make the counter case. You say selfishness is really the only value in economics that's going to forward yourself and also forward the society at large. What's the case for selfishness? Well, the case for selfishness is that you only have one life and you, you, know, you, you have a fundamental choice that you have to live or not to live, right? And that every choice should be made around living, that this fundamental alternative shapes your values. All your values should be geared towards your survival and survival as a human being, which means survival as a full human with, with your rational capacity, your spiritual capacity, your capacity to you know, live a complete and full life. So the argument for self-interest in a broader sense is the argument that basically says, you, you know, it's your life. It's nobody else's life. It's your life. Live it for your own sake, live it to, 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 to achieve your own personal happiness. And I believe one of the challenges with capitalism is that too many people over, you know, really since Adam Smith, including Adam Smith, have tried to justify capitalism not from an egoistic perspective, not from a selfish perspective, not from the perspective of individuals pursuing their own happiness, individual pursuing their own values, their own rational values, but from the perspective of what it does for society. So Adam Smith says, the baker doesn't bake the bread for you, he bakes the bread for himself. He's being selfish. But we don't like selfishness, Adam Smith says. We, we, you know, it's not, a, it's not a virtue, it's really deep down a vice. But when you add up all the vices, it turns into a virtue. Society's better off if everybody pursues their self-interest. And I'm like, no, nobody believes that if you add up vices, it turns into a, into a virtue. I'm saying the baker taking care of himself and his family and feeding them and, and, and making a profit for himself, that's virtue, right? And that's the moral justification for capitalism. You can't justify capitalism from the perspective of, no, they're, they're being golden geckos, they're really greedy, but it turns out that if they do that, 
yeah, the world's a better place, so we'll let them do it. Nobody believes you, and nobody's going to allow that to happen. The regulatory state is built around the idea that those greedy, selfish businessmen are going to cheat. They're going to steal. They're all crooks, because that's what we associate with self-interest. And therefore, we have to regulate them and control them. Now, this is where I got in trouble with some of the objectivists when I was on Dave Rubin's show. I was talking about capitalism. And one of the things I suggested is I said that it effectively has the same consequence as forced altruism if that actually worked. You can't force altruism from other people because then it loses the actual character of altruism. But more than that, what I was trying to say is that free exchange is I don't get what I want from you unless I give you something that you want. So the effect is that you get what you want from me. But that's only because I'm also getting what I want from you. So the effect is the same. I think the linguistic kind of approach well, is I, different. I think the effect is completely different. It, okay. it, 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 the effect is completely different because, as you said, you can't actually do that through altruism. Right. right. And, and let's be clear what altruism means because there's a lot of confusion about altruism. Altruism is a term coined by Augustine Comte, the, the French philosopher in the 19th century. It's People use it today to mean being, being nice, nice and friendly and opening doors to, you know, and take standing up when an old woman, you know, gets on the bus. It, that's not altruism. That's just being nice and being a, a kind of a decent human being. Altruism means living for others. It means never thinking of self, denouncing self, being selfless, sacrificing your own values for the sake of other people's values. Now, that to me is evil, right? Why is somebody else's life more important than mine? Why is somebody else's happiness more important than mine? To me, the idea of sacrificing my values sacrificing what is going to further my life for the sake of somebody else, that is wrong, right? So altruism as a, as a philosophical concept, in my view, is, is an evil concept, is an is a immoral concept. That does not negate being nice to people, opening doors, and, and all of that stuff. It doesn't even negate helping people. But it negates sacrificing my values for the sake of other people, right? So... So forced altruism, what does forced altruism even mean? It means I'm going to force you to help other people, to give them what? Well, as soon as force is involved, values are kind of out the door because right. you're not choosing. As soon as the central planning is involved, we don't know what's good for you or what's good for the other person. The beauty of a marketplace is that I get to choose my values. I get to pursue my values. I get to use my mind to figure out what my values are. They're my values. I might be wrong about them. Some of them might be, might be bad values. But at the end of the day, I get to choose those values. There's no way for a central planner, there's no way for somebody else to pick values for me. Well, obviously, I agree with all of that. So I think that the, the question becomes, is there a secondary value that is not being acknowledged when we talk about selfishness? And I think that you know, most people agree that when you're talking about selfishness, obviously, you're talking about selfishness plus a non-aggression principle, meaning that there are going to be many cases in which my selfish interest would require me to violate the rights of others. I mean, you, this is what massive government does on a routine basis. So I would argue that that's not true. So government does not act selfishly. Government acts, for, you know, in the, in, the, in the counter against the interests of the people in government. So I'd, I don't think politicians are being selfish when they, try to, when they try to gain more power. Right. Let me be more specific. So yeah. you have three people in a room. Two of them vote to take the third guy's wealth. Yes. That is, that is a self-interested move by the two people voting to take the third guy's wealth. So no, I don't believe that. So I don't believe it's self-interested. This is the problem of the way we think about self-interest, right? So we've been conditioned to think about the world in terms of two, one moral system, one anti-moral system. And the one moral system means be selfless, take care of others, focus all your efforts on others. This is the altruistic system. And the second system is do whatever, whatever it takes to get whatever you need, whatever, you know, that in lying, cheating, stealing, backstabbing, that's self-interest. 
but neither one of those, th this is not the alternative to altruism. The real alternative to altruism is to be a rational value seeker. And as a rational value seeker, I don't want your stuff. Your stuff has no value to me. I want to earn my stuff. If I don't earn my stuff, I don't get any self-esteem from earning that stuff. The money in and of itself is meaningless. The meaning money has is a reward for doing something productive, for creating something, for building something, for making something. So I am never, I never perceive the idea of I'm going to vote to take somebody else's stuff. No, I, you know, first, that concedes the idea that force is okay. That concedes the idea that there's no such thing as rights. And they're going to come after me next, right? So just on a pragmatic sense, that's bad. But from a, self, from a spiritual sense, from a self-esteem self perspective, I don't want to lie, cheat, and steal in order to get stuff. That's bad for me. That's not self-interested. In my view, that's actually being selfless because it's not thinking about what's truly good for me. If I think what's truly good for me, it's to be productive. It's to be rational. It's to earn what I get. It's to consume only what I produce in a sense of... I, so I, I agree with your, your analysis of what would be the proper move in, in terms of what my self-interest is. But yes. I guess the question is that it's difficult to suss out from the language that is often used in the world of objectivism. When, I, when people hear selfishness, what they hear is self-interest. Yes. And self-interest is something I can't decide for you. But you are actually deciding for me what my self-interest is when you're talking about this. It, you're saying that I can improperly act on my own self-interest which is not me being able to act on my own perception of my self-interest, correct? Yes, so, so I believe they're universal values. They're universal values that relate to self-interest, right? It's self-interest requires certain values to be pursued. I believe, you know, the three cardinal values that Ayn Rand identified are reason, purpose, and self-esteem. Every human being, in order to be happy, in order to be successful at living, in order to have a successful life, has to pursue reason, has to pursue a purpose in his life, and has to pursue his own self-esteem. Those are the values that you need. And then she actually articulates seven virtues, virtues that correspond to those values and are necessary actions that one needs to take in order to achieve happiness. So people confuse, and again, this is, I think, how altruism conditions us because altruism has been around certainly since Christianity. Altruism is very much ingrained in Christianity. It's the essence. It's, it's, just, it's a fundamental moral system in Christianity. I think Judaism is a little bit more ambiguous, but in terms of Christianity, there's no question. Altruism conditions us to think in a certain way, but here are virtues that say, in order to achieve happiness, every human being must follow these virtues. And how do we know these virtues? We don't know them through revelation, obviously. We don't know them because they just exist out there and we discover them out there in the world. We know them by, in, in, through empirical evidence. What leads human beings to success? Do, do people who lie constantly, do they actually achieve happiness? Do they actually achieve flourishing, achieve prosperity? And the answer is no. Not if you understand what true human happiness is. Uh, people who are leeches, people who live off of others, people who never produce anything, can they truly be happy? No, not if you really examine history and you examine the world around us. So this is interesting because I, I want to ask you about the distinction in making consequentialist arguments with regard to free markets generally and the consequentialist argument that you're actually making right now with regard to selfish values. It sounds like there's a consequentialist argument being made on behalf of the values of selfishness, meaning we know what will benefit you and we know what won't benefit you because we've seen this repeated, we've seen this experiment repeated many, many times, and we know what works and what doesn't. There's a certain sense in which this whole consequentialist view, there's a false dichotomy here. The way I think human knowledge works is we start 
by observing the world. We start by seeing instances of things occurring. We then generalize from that, right? We generalize, we, we, we come up with a, a theory about what it is, and then we test it out into reality. When, when you're coming up with morality, and this is where I think you can derive more, uh, uh, an art from it is, when the, 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 how should we live? How should a human being live? Well, what does life require? Well, we look at the world and we say, well, how have people lived? How has human progress been achieved? How are individuals being successful? Well, I think the first thing you observe is people who are successful, and certainly the way humanity has progressed is when reason is being applied to the problem of human survival. Everything we have around us, the wonderful technology around us right now, the food we have, you know, you can't even hunt without using this, without using your reason. So reason has to be the central value in order for human beings to survive. How do I know this? By looking around, by inducing from what's actually happened in reality, what actually happens uh, every day around it. So yes, the, the objectivist principles are induced from reality, and then they become principles. And now, once I figured out that, for example, honesty is a good strategy, right? That, that you know, lying to myself is the worst, but, and lying to others is bad. I don't have to then, every time I'm facing a new situation, think, oh, should I or shouldn't I? Is it in my, quote, self-interest to lie this time, right? No, I've already figured out there's a principle. It's not in my self-interest to be dishonest. So I'm not dishonest. So these, and these principles are universal. It's a very natural law perspective. I mean, what you're talking about is very close to the idea of natural law, right? That we can discern from the, from the world around us what are the rules by which we ought to live. Yes, and I would add to that human nature, right? So it's not, right. An, I, I'm not finding it in the world out there. I'm finding an interaction between the hu world out there and, and human life and what human life requires and what my consciousness requires as a, as a conscious being. Right? So one of the divisions that you and I have is obviously a division over the presence of God in the universe yes. or the necessity of a God-based system for philosophy. And one of the things that Rand obviously focuses tremendously on is the notion that you are a free actor. You have free will. You have the capacity to reason. And the scientific materialists suggest <laughs> precisely the opposite, right? Yes. They suggest that yes. basically we are a ball of, of neurons wandering through yes. the universe, firing without our permission, yes. and that we don't have the capacity to act freely in the universe. So in the religious view, the idea of free will, the idea of even reason is discerned from the notion that there is a creator, that the creator has endowed you with the capacity to reason, and so that is a fundamental assumption that's made at the root of Judeo-Christian religion. Where do you make the assumption that reason is more than just a firing of evolutionarily beneficial neurons uh, and that free will is, is something that is real or capable? I mean, there are folks like Sam Harris who argue not. Obviously. Yes, and I would disagree dramatically with, with Sam Harris on this. I think you get it through introspection. I think introspection is as valid as looking out into the world and using your senses. I can observe the processes of my consciousness. I can observe them, I can see them, and I can, I can actually observe me making choices. And I think there's, you know, I, I, there's a certain sense in which I agree with Sam Harris, raising your hand and, and waving your hand. Of course. Yeah, that's nuance firing or whatever. That, yes. right? I mean, that's, that's kind of silly. The, the, the fundamental choice that we all make is a fundamental choice that I think those of us who make it, observe, or make a positive choice, observe it. And that is the fundamental choice to focus our minds. Uh, it, you know, you can drift in life. You can stay... Kind of, kind of without really putting everything in focus and using your mind and activating reason. And this is one of the, the, the funny things I find with these materialists. You know, where do they get reason from if there's no choice? Say so there has to be choice enough for reason to mean anything. Yep. Where do they get choices? And Sam Harris talks a lot about choices and, and, and he talks about morality. Right. Where is there morality and choice without free will? 
So free will to me is an axiomatic concept that is, that is derived from a direct observation. It's just like existing. It's a Cartesian argument. It's just, well, I mean, not this really. is I think, therefore I am, effectively. Well, but no, because I don't think, therefore I am. I am, therefore I think. But, you know, so, so reason is an attribute of my existence. Right. I, my ability, so free will is an attribute of the particular kind of consciousness that human beings have. Can I explain it scientifically? No. But there are lots of things in the world we can't explain scientifically, and, and we also know that science advances, and over time we can explain more and more. So why draw a line at some point and say, because we can't explain it scientifically right now, it doesn't exist? But that's ridiculous. I can actually see it, right? So it, it, it would be the equivalent of, I don't see the world as round, so it can't be round. But we've got, but you know, other people can actually show that the world is round. Scientists, Galileo, whatever, can show that the world is round before Galileo, actually, right? So, so but we ignore that, right? So I can actually observe. I'm not going to negate my actual observation. My actual observation is the starting point for everything in objectivism. So existence exists. It's there. I can see it. I can observe it. Um, so, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, free will is an axiomatic concept. You start with that. So are the rules of the road culturally derived over, over the course of history? Do they evolve? Or would a pure intellect, pure reason be able to discern the sort of self-interested rules by which we ought to live. I think, I think the rules of the road, the, 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 you know, philosophers figure this out. I think it's hard. I don't think it's easy. Aristotle took a stab at it, right? What's, what's the goal of Aristotle's ethics? It's to live the good life. Right. It's, it's, to be, it's, it's to be an egoist, right? It's to be selfish. It's to live the best life you can for yourself, right? And then he tries to figure out what that looks, what like. That looks like. And I disagree with him on what it looks like, but I agree with the goal. Right? So, so I think that it takes time to observe human behavior, to observe history evolving in order to be able to figure out what the principles are. And I'll give you an example. Ayn Rand said that she could not have fully articulated her moral code without having lived post-Industrial Revolution. Because she said the Industrial Revolution taught us something very, very powerful. It taught us the existential value of human reason. Because it's really the first time on a massive scale that we applied human reason to the problem of human survival and achieved massive, amazing results. We, we took science, we applied engineering, we added business, and we got you know, a massive increase in wealth, massive increase in life expectancy and, and human well-being, dramatic. But that is at every stage. It's the, ad, it's the application of reason to this particular issue. And she said pre-industrial evolution, that wasn't obvious. It's not clear because... You know, as, as we've all seen the graphs where for 100,000 years, we basically lived at the same poverty subsistence level. Subsistence level, yeah. Subsistence level. And so the Industrial Revolution taught us something. And I'm sure in the future, we'll learn more things about, about life and about reality out there that might change the particular, the, the particular orientation of what it means to be self-interested, selfish. But as of now, as of the state of knowledge we have as human beings right now, I think Rand got it right. So I want to ask you a couple more questions about reason, one from the left and one sort of from the right. So the, sure. the question from the left is whether you're putting too much faith in the ability of human beings to reason, right? This would be the sort of David Hume argument that, in essence, reason is the, is the, uh, reason is the, the rider on the elephant, sort of the, as Jonathan Haidt puts it, right? That emotion really drives most of our decision-making, that at best you can slightly guide that. But for the most part, the emphasis on reason is a backfill of what we want to do sure. instinctively. And this is, 
obviously, there are gradations of reason too. So you're, you're operating maybe from a premise of sort of the homo economist, the, the, the perfect human who has the capacity for reason. And most people don't actually make decisions like that. In fact, there are plenty of people who make decisions that are very much against their own self-interest and against their own reason. So how much can we rely on reason as a tool in how most people live their lives? Maybe you can, maybe you're reasonable, maybe I'm reasonable. For a vast society, how much can we rely on, on reason? Well, I think, I think you, have to, you have to differentiate between descriptive and prescriptive, right? If we're describing the world, yes, a lot of people don't live by reason. Most people, most of the time, unfortunately, don't live by reason, but that's sad. They're not living up to their full potential as human beings. And nobody's teaching them to do it. Nobody's encouraging them to do it. Nobody's arguing that they should do it. There was a brief period in human history, the Enlightenment, where people actually talked about living by reason and using reason to make important, make decisions in your life and reason as the source of knowledge. And even they weren't 100% consistent and didn't have the full theory down to be able to do it right. So it's, it doesn't happen automatically. Reason is something you have to choose. Reason is something you have to pursue. Reason is ha something you have to engage with. It requires effort. It requires real work. It doesn't just come. So again, this is the counter to Sam Harris. We're not automatons. We have to choose reason. And we live in a world, and I think ever increasing, where people are not choosing to live by reason. And I think that's a lot, a big part of the problems we have in the world. I think that most of the problems we have in the world, world is, is people evading the choice to reason, ignoring it and, and, and not doing it. And therefore, they're not happy, and the world has is, is got all the cultural and political problems that we experience. So I think everybody's capable of reason, and I think you see that, for example, when you go into a lot of, of, a lot of workplaces, you know, Silicon Valley is a good example, you see people who are incredibly engaged in logic and reason and applying themselves to a particular problem that they're facing, and they're, they're brilliant at it, they're amazing at it. But when they leave work, that switch is turned off often. So they have silly politics, not even, you know, just stupid politics. They might, they might have personal relationships that are really messed up and not based on reason, but based on emotion. But they, you know they're capable of it because you could see them doing it work. And I'd say Americans typically are, are really good at applying their reason in, a productive, in their productive endeavors. And, they're very, and, and then they leave that at work and they, and they become different, in a sense, different people outside of work. I'm saying if we educate people right, if we encourage them and we change our moral code, we're telling them morality is about reason. If you want to be a good person, you should use reason. So morality is not about all the things that you've been taught to be about, being selfless, sacrifice, living for other people, all of that. Morality is really about living the best life for yourself. And to do that, you have to reason. Then I think every human being is capable of it. Whether every human being chooses to do it is a different story. But, but every moral system, there are people who choose not to follow it. Uh, you know, I argue that this is the best moral system for human beings, for individual human beings. And I would encourage them all to apply the reason. Everybody has that capacity. And again, that's an idea that the Enlightenment believed in, right? And, and we've lost it. We, so, we've lost it on both left and right. Right. And I, I actually agree a lot with that critique of the, of the critics of the Enlightenment. Now I want to ask you about the right-wing critique of the Enlightenment, of which I count myself sort of a member. So the, the right-wing critique is that the Enlightenment is a bit of rewriting of history, that essentially the Enlightenment is living off of the back of a Judeo-Christian value system that is developed and and purified over the course of several thousand years, and that by the time you get to the Enlightenment, what you don't have is a break between reason and the past. What you actually have is the full flowering of reason in the context of a particular culture, which is why the Enlightenment happens where it does at the time 
that it does. And the reason that that critique matters is not just historical. Sure. The reason the critique matters is because the subsequent history of the Enlightenment, particularly in places like France, uh, the, the Marxist views that I think can be put as at least one half of the Enlightenment, uh, that, that, that reason can take you to some pretty dark places is sort, of the, is sort of the critique, that you need some fundamental values to build on top of using reason. This is the case for Judeo-Christian value systems. And that without those, reason unmoored can take you to some incredibly dark places. Human beings are capable of reasoning themselves to all sorts of horrible conclusions, including the collectivism that, that you hate. So, so there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, right? of course. There's, yeah. there's a lot of content there. So, so let's start first with the fact that I don't believe Marx is a man of the Enlightenment at all. I think he's the negation of the Enlightenment, and it follows a tradition of negating the environment. If you think about, if you think about uh, the Enlightenment, I think it ends with Immanuel Kant. I think Kant is the first anti-Enlightenment thinker. He, his whole project it's is to save faith. Is to save faith from from reason, and. He undercuts it. And from that point on, the whole German uh, romantic and philosophy tradition is an anti-enlightenment, anti-reason tradition. And that includes Marx. And of course, Marx is a Hegelian in many respects. And Hegel, I mean, the last thing you would say about Hegel is he's a man of reason. He believes contradictions exist. And, and what's the whole issue of logic? Logic is the negation of contradictions. It's, it's the recognition that there are no contradictions and you, you've got to find what is, what is true and what is not. So... So Hegel rejects logic and, and ultimately rejects reason completely, and Marx is just a continuation of that trend. So I take the whole of, of philosophy from Rousseau and Kant on as being anti-enlightenment and undercutting enlightenment, and therefore the, the, the development of communism and fascism and all of those, I consider those anti-enlightenment movements and anti-Western movements. I think that is the remnant of the anti-Western. There's always this tension between the West and the anti-Western ideas that are, that are below the surface. Now, where we will definitely disagree is that I believe that, that in a sense, a Judeo-Christian tradition is one of those. It's an it's a anti-Western remnant that is constantly trying to fight against the fundamental ideas of the Enlightenment. And in, in many respects, I think Marxism is much more connected to the Judeo-Christian tradition than it is to, to Enlightenment values. And we can talk about why mm -hmm. that is or why I think that. But let's, let's just take the Enlightenment for a second. So I don't think the Enlightenment... I, I mean, the Enlightenment's flawed, so I, I don't consider the Enlightenment as completed, and the Enlightenment is, is the beginning of a process. I actually think, again, that Ayn Rand, in many respects, is an Enlightenment figure and completes many of, the, uh, many of the ideas and many of the goals of the Enlightenment. But the Enlightenment is basically a, a rejection in many realms of life, not in all of them, but in many realms of life, of the, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, you're right in the sense that it doesn't come out of nowhere. Of course it doesn't. There's an evolution. Evolution starts with Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, bringing Aristotle into the Catholic Church and, and the scholastics taking reason and logic seriously. And then the Renaissance, the discovery of Greek art and, 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 uh, and Greek ideas and humanism. And all of that leads to what I think is the flowering of all of that, which is the Enlightenment, the, the, the idea of placing reason above all else. And, and now they don't have it completely tight, right? They don't know yet what to do with morality. They don't know where to get morality. So they rely on a Judeo-Christian morality because in a sense, that's all they have. They, they, none of those thinkers, uh, Locke all the way to, 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 to Hume, uh, and including the founding fathers, none of them are original philosophical thinkers when it comes to ethics. The original philosophical things when it comes to other areas, certainly political philosophy, mm -hmm. the geniuses, mm -hmm. but when it comes to ethics, they're not original, they're not original thinkers, and therefore they rely on the Judeo-Christian tradition. They're uncomfortable with it, 
as Thomas Jefferson, you know, creating the Jeffersonian Bible illustrates, right? He cuts out the stuff he doesn't like and he keeps only the good stuff or what he considers the good mm-hmm. stuff. They're uncomfortable with that tradition, but they don't know where else to look for morality. Now, we're 150, 200, you know, we're 200 plus years post. I, and again, I think Ayn Rand is an important philosophical figure that, that kind of bridges that. And she provides, I think, now a philosophical foundation for finding that morality that's consistent with their political thinking, which is consistent with the idea of reason that the Enlightenment is so, is, which is so important in the Enlightenment. And now there's also a morality. And now I think fully we can, we can put aside the Judeo-Christian tradition and say, no, that's, that, that's in a sense an anti-Western force and we don't need it anymore. Now, if you want me to connect the Marxism to the Judeo-Christian tradition, I'm happy to do that. Well, I mean, that's sort of a Nietzschean critique, right? I mean, Nietzsche essentially argues that Christianity is the morality of the weak against the strong, and, and Marxism is somewhat similar. So that, that's sort of the Nietzschean well, it's, critique. It's more than that, I would say. I'd say that, that Judeo-Christian, particularly Christianity, you know, I, I want to emphasize, because I don't want to get into a long discussion of Judaism, but <laughs> Christianity, I think, is more influential. I think of it's, course, it's a of dominant, course. so it's, 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 it's easier to critique, and I think Judaism is more subtle and more difficult to critique. But, but Christianity emphasizes the role of self-sacrifice. It emphasizes the idea of uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, the, the idea that, that there's something suspicious about wealth, the idea that pursuing a self-interest is bad. And, and we could talk about why American Christians have a different view, but, but for, the, for that is the moral view. I mean, ultimately, there's a Jesus on a cross dying for sins he didn't commit, and that's a moral ideal. He is a superhero, right? That's horrible, in my view. You don't die for sins you didn't commit. I mean, it's okay to suffer for sins you did commit, but for sins you didn't commit, that's the biggest injustice in, in all of this mythology is Jesus on a cross. It's a massive injustice. He shouldn't be there. So, but that's the symbol because it's a symbol of sacrifice. And that's the most noble, most virtuous, most ethical thing anybody could do. Now, so what is he sacrificing for? He's sacrificing God, but ultimately sacrificing for other people. He's sacrificing for the group. He's sacrificing for the collective. Now, what Marx does is a, is a cool trick, in my view. In, in, in a sense, he substitutes the proletarian for God. And he says, yes, the individual should sacrifice. The individual should live for others. The individual should be completely altruistic. He should be completely selfless. But since there is no God, we're not going to do it for God. I mean, I don't believe in that. We're going to do it for this group called the proletarian. Now, it's convenient that, you know, how do we know what's good for a group, right? So we don't know what's good for a group. So we have to have somebody call it a, a philosopher king, call it a platonic philosopher king, who has to commune with the spirit of the group in order to tell us. And that's why we need a dictator in order for, at least until we all change our nature somehow mm-hmm. and become <laughs> one with the proletarian and, you know, and, and, and join the communist utopia. But to me, communism is much more Christian in that sense than it is uh, enlightenment. It's, it's indeed a rejection of enlightenment. You cannot get to communism through reason. Communism is a negation of reason. It's a negation of fact. It's a negation of human nature. So it's, it's anything that's negation of reality, anything that negates human nature is not based on reason. Reason, I mean, people think of reason as logic, just, just playing logical games in your mind. And unfortunately, that's Kant. Kant divorces reason from reality. He says, we, we can't really know real reality. So all we can do is play mind games. Well, reason is not that. Reason, the, the fundamental reason is identifying the world, identifying facts, identifying truth, identifying reality. And if something negates reality, then it negates reason. All right, so now I want to ask you about the more yeah. controversial aspects of, of objectivism. And this is in the interpersonal realm. So I remember that Stephen Colbert did a, a skit back when he was doing, I think, 
The Daily Show with yeah, John Stewart yeah, with yeah. an objectivist kindergarten, and the kids were banned from sharing because sharing was obviously <laughs> terrible. They weren't allowed to share toys with each other, and it was sort of a funny riff. Yeah. But that that is the general kind of public perception of what objectivism is: that because selfishness is bad, that sharing toys between children is bad. We have to teach them, we have to punish them for sharing because selfishness is good. Now, earlier on, you made the distinction between sort of just being nice and being altruistic, yeah. and I want to push on that sure. for a minute because. How do you make that distinction? Meaning that a lot of the nice things that we do on a daily basis are things that mildly inconvenience us. Like it does inconvenience you to open the door for somebody. That's not something that's necessarily in my reasonable interest. I could just walk out the door. Where do you make the distinction between what I think most people consider altruism and just being nice? Well, are you giving up a value that is more important than what you're providing, right? So I think goodwill among people, having a benevolent view of other people and treating other people with, with, with respect and, and kindness is a value. And if I'm not, you know, if I'm rushing because my kid has to get to the emergency room and I have to drive him there and I'm rushing to save my kid's life, to hell with anybody trying well, to go through the, right? Of course, right? Because that's clearly my self-interest is to do that. And that is my primary focus. If I'm running to a meeting, I'm a little late. I might not stand there and open the door for somebody. But you know, if, if time is not that important at that point, then that goodwill is a higher value than what I'm giving up, right? So to me, every human being, his moral responsibility is to work on a hierarchy of values. What is your most important value? And what other, what, where do all the other values fall in this hierarchy? And one of the ideas around uh, this is never give up a high value for a low value. Now, we always do, we're constantly doing trade-offs, right? So people say, well, you go, you know, you, you go to, the, uh, to the movies and you don't, uh, you give up going to the movies to stay with your kids, right? You're sacrificing the movies. Really? No, my kids are great, higher value. Spending time with my kids is a higher value than going to the movies. So I spend time with my kids, right? So there is a, there's a value hierarchy. Sacrifice is when you give up something higher for something lower. I don't sacrifice. Well, how, how, are you, how are you measuring the value? Meaning that in terms of immediate joy, obviously that's not true. I mean, if your kid's bar barfing in the, in the bathroom and you can go see a movie. But, but again, immediate joy is not the standard for anything. Nobody, nobody, could, nobody really seriously, when you think about what does life mean, think about the instantaneous gratification. I mean, some people do. That's why they're drug addicts and, and so on, right? But, but that's not a serious view of human life. Human life is lived over the long run. Given that I know that, I don't even get joy from the short-term things because I know if I know I'm, in a sense, sacrificing the future for, for, for getting a thrill right now, I don't even enjoy the thrill right now. Um, I mean, you made a critique, I think, in, in, in um, uh, Dave Rubin's show, mm -hmm. something about the woman at the bar. Yeah, right. If you're selfish, you're going for the woman at the bar. I'm not attracted to the woman at the bar because my whole view of sex, my whole view of my own life is hooked into what is rational and what is long-term. So the woman at the bar doesn't, provide me any kind of, yes, I could get an instant thrill out of that. But the instant thrill is not valuable to me. And it's certainly not valuable to me on the scale of the kind of values I'd be giving up in order to get that thrill. We understand trade-offs in economics all the time. Well, the same thing is true in morality. And here, if I have a principle, and again, we, we derive principles from what is successful to human life over the long run, what is rational and successful, then I'm never going to be tempted to lie. I'm never going to be tempted to cheat. I'm never going to be tempted by a cheap thrill. It just doesn't interest me because I'm so focused on what is good for me in the long run. And that's the challenge that morality places. Morality is not easy in the sense that it's effortless. Morality requires thinking. It requires 
engaging with, with your mind, engaging in what's truly in your long-term self-interest and actually doing it. I mean, one, one of the things that's sort of fascinating in Atlas Shrugged, to take an example, is the passivity of people in terms of their sexual relationships. So there, there is one character who obviously is very sexually needy uh, and is, is seen as sort of a, a drain on one of the other characters. But Dagny kind of bounces from through a series of men before she ends up with John Galt. Yes. And everybody seems sort of okay with this, right? I mean, she, she, moves, she moves from man to man. And all the men are saying, well, she, no, that, she's just pursuing yeah. her. Yeah. Is that in any way a realistic view of how human beings interact? Or, or she, and is there anything about her behavior in Atlas Shrugged that is immoral in, in taking Hank Reardon away from his family? It's his wife who's seen as sort of yeah, the needy yeah, person. Yeah. But taking Hank Reardon, Hank Reardon pursues her. She drops him, and he's just fine with this. This is all fine. That seems like a, a pretty well. There's a lot of there's, again a lot of impact <laughs> there. But first, I, no, I think it's a. It's, I, I would I would flip it on you. I would say it's a it's a model for moral behavior. Not only is it an immoral, it's a model for moral behavior. She is pursuing her values, not in a short term thrill. Remember, she's not bouncing from man to man. She sleeps with three men, all of them giants. Right. Right. Now I have different inclinations, but all of them. If I if I was a woman, I would want to sleep with. Right. I mean, these are not just men that she picks up at a bar. Well, of course. These are giants of 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 industry, morality, yeah. of industry, of 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 integrity, of of so many things. And Weirden is an interesting character in Atlas Shrugged because he's the one character who really evolves through the novel. He begins the novel with loaded up with this guilt and loaded up with this duty. To, 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 to be with this wife he doesn't love and he, and he has no real honest relationship with. And he's duty-bound because he's been given this morality of altruism his whole life. A, if you marry somebody, you just have to stick with it. B, you know, sex is animalistic. It's barbaric. It's, it's, so, so you just have to do it because it's your duty. And, just... and so he has an unhealthy relationship over here. And he's starting to break out of that. He's starting to, his mind is racing. He's exposed to another character in Atlas Shrugged that is making him think about this. And then he meets this woman who is, blows him away, right? Again, not a floozy at the bar, right. not just some, but a giant, a, a, this a, amazing woman, right? And, and he's sexually attracted to her, sexually attracted to her, I would say, in a healthy way, because he's attracted to her value, not just to the physical act, but to what, it, what she represents and what she means. And he, he, he pursues her and ultimately has sex with her. And if you remember the scene after he has sex with her, he condemns himself for having sex with her. Right. Because again, he views it as an animalistic. And it takes the whole book for him to really realize that he, it's not, sex is not animalistic, that pursuing his own self-interest is not evil, that, that, he is a, that, he, that his relationship with the real evil relationship, the real bad relationship with, with his wife and her family and her brother all leeches on him. And that... He needs to he needs to free himself from that relationship and actually now pursue his his well, ultimate I mean, what, values. But what happens if Hank has a kid, right? Well, it, it, the, the book is is easy in the sense that there are no children anywhere. Yeah. So what happens if Hank and his wife have a kid? And now it's not just a question of him breaking up a marital vow, which may be burdensome to him, but they're both adults. Sure. And now sure. it's a question sure. of there's this other thing that is here because when you talk about hierarchy of values, this has been a hierarchy of values that in the West has been completely forgotten as the divorce rate skyrocket and people make the selfish decision to suggest that divorce has no impact on children, that it's had a massive impact on children. Well, but, but when we don't know, and, and it's hard to measure, right? We don't know maybe because it's hard to measure. What is the, what is the impact on children of living in a loveless marriage? What is the impact of children in living in a marriage where they, the two despise each other, which would be the case of, of Reardon and, and, uh, and his wife? Uh, I think that's much more damaging. So my view is psychologically, 
much more damaging than getting a divorce is living in a marriage that is horrible, that is, that is awful, that is breaking apart, where people despise each other. So I would say, you know, if he had a child, then I would hope he would get custody because I think his, <laughs> his wife is a horrible, evil you know, human being. <laughs> so I would want him to raise the child and take them, take them to the valley uh, and, and, and live happily ever after. And yes, that's not ideal. The ideal would be to marry somebody who you truly love and you have a... a, a a relationship over many, many decades and you raise children with and, and, and everybody's, but that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you marry somebody and you discover after five years, after 10 years, you know, you don't like each other. And even though you've got children, the, the, the living together is more damaging and more dangerous for the kids than actually getting a divorce. I mean, is that a convenient answer? The, the social science seems to suggest that the you know, parents living apart have, I mean, it does have, it breaks apart your child's world. And is there a gradation here? I mean, you're talking about the extreme case of you have one spouse who's in the book, legitimately evil, oh, and well, one who is well, of course, there's not. a gradation. But, and again, and again, you would have to evaluate as a human being. You would have to evaluate. Well, but here's the question: It's not you evaluating; it's you evaluating. Meaning, mean, your own evaluating. Yeah, not yeah. it's not because you're saying that there is a objective, reasonable standard by which we could assess whether somebody's yes. behavior is correct or not. So well, it's not. I'm not going to evaluate not, you. By your responsibility in your life is to is to make these evaluations. I'm going to tell you morally what the standard for, evalu- for what the standard for you to make a decision is, and that is use reason. You know, be honest. Think about all the facts. Take into account all the all the evidence. Don't evade. Don't be emotional about the decision. That would be how you make the decision. So, where where do you, Yaron, decide yes. where to condemn somebody else's moral decision? Meaning that you know, I, uh, I think I think it's I, I think it's very difficult to condemn somebody else's moral decision. In in many cases, it's it's hard. There's certain things that are unequivocal. If somebody's, if somebody's clearly being dishonest, if somebody's clearly being a leech off of other people, if somebody is driven by emotion and not using their mind, that to me is immoral. So I don't think about morality in terms of did they get a divorce or didn't they? Did they sleep around or didn't they? I think of morality in terms of how did they come to the decisions that they came to? What is the process? And, and I look at the behavior and I look at what led to their behavior. So to me, it's, it's how are they living and what are the principles that are guiding their life? And to the extent that they're being dishonest, to the extent that they're not being productive, to the extent that they are, that they're negating reason or, or being irrational, uh, to the extent that they don't take pride in their own achievement. I consider all of those things immoral. And the fundamental for objectivism in terms of what is immoral is evasion, is, is evading reality, is evading facts. And so many people, particularly when it comes to divorce or children or things like that, there's certain facts that are inconvenient. I'm not going to think about that. That, to me, is the essence of, of immorality. Well, th- this is, I think, the, the fascinating distinction in my mind as I think about this between why I am warm on, on Randian thought when it comes to economics, but yeah. not as warm when it comes to interpersonal sure. relationships. And the reason is because when it comes to economics, there are guardrails to reason. The guardrail is, I can want you to give me as much money as I want you to give me. But if you're not willing to do that, then I have no say in the matter. Yeah. The guardrails are the, the value of consent, right? And the value of your individualism. But when it comes to interpersonal relationships very often, particularly when children are involved, then you get into the realm of externalities. And I wonder, how does objectivist thought deal with externalities? Because my relationship with my wife has a pretty significant externality. That is how we treat each other, how we live together in a house, how that, how that deals with kids. And that raises the, the economic question that I'm sure you're asked very often. How do you deal with folks in a society who are not capable of reason, can't sure. take care of themselves? The value of selfishness is of little uh, is of little concert to folks who are mentally ill, for example. H- how do you deal with that as a society? Where does selfishness come into that? Well, I mean, 
Let's think about what externalities mean, because you know, and I don't think about externalities in the interpersonal sense in which in which you do. Suddenly, the way my wife and I interact affects our children, right? And, and look, I've been married thirty. My wife's here, so thirty-six years. <laughs> I better get this right. Thirty-six years, right? So, so I, I, yeah, I've done this. I've got two boys, so so you know, I, I I've done all this, and yes, the way you interact is is crucially important to to the way you raise kids, and you have to take that into account, and you have to think about it, and again. When you think about having kids, this is why I think it's so important not to have kids unless you're ready to have kids, unless you want to have kids, and unless you're willing to make the commitment to what it takes to have kids. But once you have them, you've made a certain commitment to interacting in a certain way, to behaving in a certain way, to treating them in a certain, uh, w- with a certain, uh, in a certain way. All of that, you know, is something you take on when you have kids, and you have to, like everything else in life, you have to reason it through. You have to rationally consider all the all the elements, all the impacts, and then address them. But it's, it's very hard uh, to say that couple is, is being immoral because of uh, X, Y, Z from the outside because you don't have all the information. Morality requires a lot of information to make moral judgment about another person. Even in murder, right, we don't jump to the conclusion. There's a whole trial. We look at the evidence. We figure it out. And sometimes it's self-defense, and it turns out that killing somebody else is not an immoral thing. Sometimes killing somebody else is the moral thing to do because self-defense is moral. Now, when it comes to externalities in economics, again, there are different ways to think about this. Usually, the externalities that I get in q and yeah. are the environmentalism. But, but you're right. There are externalities about, around, let's say, poor people. My view of externalities around poor people is they're all positive, or almost all positive. Capitalism allows the poor to rise up. It provides them better jobs. It makes them more productive. It, 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 in, in every respect, uh, capitalism is a beneficiary. And in that respect... If you think about people who can't help themselves, if you think about, uh, you know, the, the mentally uh, retarded who, who can't, who can never get a job or, or somebody who's really suffered a, a, a debilitating disease or something like that. Well, capitalism has made us so rich that it's relatively easy to take care of people like that. The systems that make it impossible to take care of people like that are socialism where everybody's dying and everybody's starving or, you know, pre-capitalist society where people people basically died. If you, were, if you couldn't take care of yourself, you died. If your family wasn't wealthy enough to take care of you, you died. Today, most families can take care of a sick kid. Most families, and again, we live in a non-capitalist society today. We live in a mixed economy. We're, we're a lot poorer than we should be. Uh, you know, our healthcare system should be a lot cheaper and a lot more efficient than it should be if it was privatized. So uh, with all of those caveats, it's still true that most people can take care of people because we're so wealthy in, in relative terms. So Capitalism provides that wealth. Now, beyond that, uh, and we'll get to environmentalism in a minute, beyond mm-hmm. that, I, I also think that charity can be a, a wonderful thing. Again, uh, 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 you know, having a positive attitude towards other human beings. I don't want to, I have no interest in seeing other people suffer. I value human beings. Hey, I value my plants in my house. Why do I value plants? Because it's, a, it's, it's something alive. There's something beautiful and something wonderful and something valuable to human consciousness about something being alive. Well, if you value a plant and we value our pets, wow, another human being's life is, is an amazing value. And unless I know something horrible about this human being, in which case I don't help them, but if they're basically a good human being, or if I don't know anything about them and I, and I want to be benevolent, then I'm going to help them. I have no problem with charity and help. Again, as long as it doesn't come at the expense of my kids, my life, my ability to progress. So once you've taken care of yourself, there's absolutely nothing in objectivism that's anti-charity and indeed... Ayn Rand considered it a minor virtue, not a major virtue, but a minor virtue to, to, to be charitable towards others. Um, so that's how, and, and I think at the end of the day, those people get taken care of, A, by family, and B, 
by charitable institutions that provide whatever, you know, the services and needs that they get taken care of. In terms of environmentalism, uh, I mean, the solution to externalities, externalities uh, is another way of, of talking about the problem of the commons. And I, and I like to talk about it in the terms of the commons because my rebuttal to that is, well, let's get rid of the commons, right? Uh, if you privatize everything, it's relatively easy, right? I know, we know that I can't put my garbage in your backyard because there's private property. And for, two th for a thousand years, we've had common law that has said that is not. If we privatize the lakes, and if we privatized the rivers, and we had water rights, and, and it was all clear about what those rights implied, and there was a beginning of that in the 19th century, in the late 19th century with the West and development of the West, this beginning of development of a law that related to water rights and things like that. It all went away when the government took it all over. But imagine we lived in a world where we privatized all that. You privatized fishing rights, you privatized the ocean front and all of that. And I don't know necessarily how to do it. That, that's something that needs to evolve. That's something that economists and philosophers of law need to figure out. But if you did that, a lot of these issues of externalities go away. If you're spewing cyanide and I'm, and I'm breathing it and it's, it's clearly damaging me, then I sue you. And once it's been established in the courts that cyanide in the air is bad for people, it's fine for the legislature to come in and ban cyanide from being spewed into the air. I, you know, but the standard has to be human well-being and it has to be proven, and I prefer that it was proven in a court of law, and then the legislature steps in and generalizes off of that. Versus today where the EPA start, decides that a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of some chemical, maybe one day we're not sure, will cause you some harm, so therefore we're banning it by some arbitrary standard or by political manipulation, by, by you know, we've got the coal lobby and we've got the environmentalist lobby and we've got the, the workers lobby and we've got 50 lobbies all pulling in different directions and, and regulations to determine uh, or laws to determine uh, protection of individual rights, which is, I think, the only role of government, are determined by, uh, you know, this pull, these, these pull peddlers, these, uh, these uh, so-called special interest groups, they're really pressure groups, rather than by facts. So I think all of these have, have relatively easy answers. I mean, realistically, can, can you privatize the air? I mean, when, when you're talking about pollution, smog in Los Angeles, for example, and the chain of causation is not necessarily clear because everybody is driving a car in the city of Los Angeles and you have a major free rider problem. How do you exactly determine who exactly did this? And even if you half the people don't do it. You can't. So, so, so the deal is with Los Angeles, I think it's very easy. If you don't like smog in Los Angeles, don't live in Los Angeles. We live in a big country. Wyoming is unbelievably pretty and there's no smog in Wyoming. Don't live in Los Angeles. The, the idea that I get to move to Los Angeles, right, and say, oh, too many people are driving. I should be able to vote to stop them or to change the kind of cars that they drive or to put filters on. I mean, that's absurd. This city is built on cars. This is the city that was, that was founded on the highway system on, a, on mass transportation through cars. If you don't like that, if that offends you, if that causes you some health problems, move away or don't come to Los Angeles, right? There's certain ways in which we can privatize certain air rights, right? Uh, you can, you know, if, if I have a home and then you start flying airplanes above my home and you're disturbing me, there's certain legal recourse that you can get for that. But if the airport was there first and now I buy the home and now I complain about the airplanes, tough, right? Well, I mean, you I, knew that. I, I agree in terms of the chain of, in the chain of timing, but yes. I mean, are, are we setting up a system where if in the sort of John Stuart Mill, I can wave my fist until I hit you in the face, now we're saying to people that if they're getting hit in the face, they have to keep receding? 
from the person who's waving their waving their hand. I mean, you well, say move to Montana. It, it, so I moved to Montana. And wait. then it turns out I build myself a nice area in Montana. Yep. And everybody says, you know what's great? Montana. Yep. And all the people from LA decide to descend on Montana and pollute Montana the same Look, way that if, they pollute. If civilization requires us to drive cars, then that's a cost of civilization. I'll give you an example of this. In 19th century, in the middle of 19th century London, the air was full of soot. I mean, literally coal. I mean, you were breathing black lung. I mean, it was really- It changed the color of moths, it was, evolutionarily, it was, yes. Yeah, it was <laughs> bad for you. It was bad for human health in a way that the smog in LA doesn't even come close to how bad it was. Imagine if at that point we had decided, this is bad, we need to shut down every coal manufacturer, every coal plant in London has to be, or oh, oh, in the UK has to be shut down because this is causing some harm to some people. You basically kill the industrial revolution and we all subsistence farmers again. You, that, is, that is irrational, it makes no sense. So if there is a pollution that is being generated by something that is just part of living in a civilized country, like driving a car, then it just is. And, and you have to adjust your lifestyle to it, not expect everybody to stop driving or to take civilization backwards in order to satisfy the fact that you might live to 89 and three months instead of 89 and two and a half months because you, you, know, you inhaled a little bit of smog. So on a generalized level, what exactly do you think the role of government is? I think a lot of folks confuse Randian thought with libertarianism, which is not quite the same thing, no. and then they confuse it on a more general level with the anarchism, which it, which it certainly is not. So, yes. what, what, so what exactly is the Randian view, the, the objectivist view of what government ought to be doing? Well, so, 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 so let me derive it in a sense, right? So if, if we believe that egoism is, is, uh, is, is morality, is the purpose of, 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 of life, is to, is to live using your mind in order to flourish as an individual human being, in order to attain your own happiness, then what do, what do we need in order to do that? We need the freedom to think, and to freedom, the freedom to think and to act. And what is the enemy of reason? What is the enemy of, of ideas, of, of, uh, of, of thoughts, of entrepreneurial ideas, but any kind of idea. Well, the enemy of that is coercion. The enemy of that is authority from above. The enemy of that is anybody who can pull a gun out and say, no, you can't do that, right? So the role of the state, the role of government is to extract that force away so we leave us free to use our minds to pursue our own life, which is the whole idea of individual rights. The whole concept of individual rights is the idea of, of freedom, the freedom to act in pursuit of your own rational values. That's what individual rights are. So the only role of government is to protect those individual rights. In other words, to protect our freedom of action. So it's to exclude coercion from society. It's to catch the crooks, the criminals, the terrorists, the invaders. So it's a police force, it's a military, and it's a judiciary so we don't go out and duel in the middle of the street. So we have a mechanism by which, an objective mechanism by which to arbitrate disputes. We're not anarchists. I believe government is a necessary good uh, and it's, it's, it's necessary capitalism. You know, some, some people out there call themselves anarcho-capitalism. I think that's a contradiction in terms. You cannot have capitalism if you have anarchy. Capitalism requires the rule of law. It requires contracts and it requires government to enforce all of that. But its only job is that. It's the protection of individual rights. It's the protection of our freedoms. So what's the role of social institutions? So Rand is, is, very big, obviously, on individualism, individual rights, individual will, the, the, the ability to come up with a rational system by which to live. But where is man as communal being? So one of, one of the, the acknowledgments that, that I think must be made to Marx is that he does recognize 
that man does have a side of him that wants to be part of a society and part of a community. He then takes that to the ultimate extreme in the exact wrong way, obviously. Yes, yes. But what is the balance between the need to be part of a community and the sort of individualism that's inherent in, in Randian thought? But of course, Rand acknowledges that completely. And she, she says, I mean, the passages where she says, you know, individualism doesn't mean living on a desert island because it's not your self-interest to live on a desert island. Other human beings are an immense value to you, whether from an economic perspective because of the division of labor, the ability to trade, and the ability to, to specialize, which is massively beneficial. You don't want to be a Robinson Crusoe. You don't want to have to do everything. You want to be able to specialize and pursue the thing that you love and are good at uh, rather than having to do everything. So there's a massive economic benefit to living in a, in a social context, but there's a spiritual benefit too. Friendship, love, uh, the benefit of, of having other people to interact with, to talk to, to engage in, to, to go to the movies with, to, to listen to music with. All of that is a massive spiritual benefit that other people provide to you. So it's in your self-interest as an individualist to pursue people who are true values to you, whether in terms of economic relationships or whether in terms of social relationships. So friendship to her is, is, is at, the, the, at the pinnacle of kind of human relationship. The only thing above that is romantic love, is, is, is a love relationship. But friendship is incredibly valuable, in a sense, more valuable than family, excluding kids who you chose to have, but you don't choose the rest of your family. Friends, friends you choose. That's why friendship is so important and so valuable. And, it's, and you want to get that, that, uh, you know, that kind of response from friendship that, that enhances you and enhances the other person, and you're both win-win relationship. I always say, you know, People think of Rand as this, again, individualism means being on a desert island. But, but Rand is really about, in, in life, maximizing the win-win relationships you have in your life. Maximizing the, the number of relationships in which the trader principle applies, where both are winning. And that's true in the economic sphere, again, and in the spiritual sphere. It's, it, both are the same. So it, just something you mentioned, kids sharing, and I'll, 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 I'll just say, you know, I think I don't like the idea of kids sharing in, in the sense that a stranger kid comes up and I want to share your truck and like, who's this kid? I don't know this kid, right? I, I would encourage my kids to trade. Now, if they're friends, then of course you share, but you don't share with strangers. We as adults don't share with strangers, right? And kids shouldn't be expected to share with traders. Who shares with traders? With strangers. Socialists do. Communists share with strangers. That's the <laughs> idea. But as, a, as, as, as individualists, we share with people we have a common bond with, with our friends, with our family, with people we have respect and love for. And I think we should reflect that on our kids as well. So I don't encourage my kids in the playground with strangers to share with anybody. I would encourage them to say, well, what toy do you have, right? Let's, we can trade, we can play together. We can find a way to benefit from one another rather than I want to give them my toy. Well, you know, what happened to property rights when you become a kid? It, it all goes out the window or, or their own values. It all goes out the window. But there's enormous value in, in human relationships. And there's enormous value in friendships, in, in, in social get-togethers, in, in doing things together. There's the, the individualism doesn't, is not anti-social. It's anti-collectivism. It's anti-putting the group above the individual. It's anti-making the group the, the fundamental, whether for ethics, like Adam Smith says, whatever's good for society, right? That's not the standard. The standard is what is good for good individuals. What is good for virtuous individuals? That, the kind of social system that objectivism views as positive is that social system where virtuous individuals, moral individuals thrive. So I don't really care about immoral individuals. So when it comes to teaching children, I mean, you mentioned kids before, how would you teach objectivism to kids? Because obviously the emphasis is on reason, 
kids are not able to reason for a goodly period of time. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Neither is, uh, I would say, no. very reasonable no. in their pursuits. So how do you teach a morality that is rooted in reason, or is it basically that you established the rules of the road for them, and then later you explain to them why those rules were reasonable? Well, I think it's, it's worthwhile explaining throughout with the understanding that they're not going to get it for a long time, <laughs> right? But it's always good to give explanations, because it's always good for them to know that you are using reason, and there's a reason for why you are banning certain things. So I would even tell a two-year-old, don't go into the street, because, and here's why, it would hurt you. You'll be, you know, damage can happen. Bad stuff can happen. So it's always good to give an explanation, recognizing that they won't have the full context for the explanation until they're much older. I think the main way you teach morality to children is by example, is, is by modeling it. It's by being rational in your own life. It's by how you treat other people, how you engage in relationships with other people. And then over time, explaining these things. And the, the worst thing in the world is to become preachy and to, be, and to also treat morality the objectivist morality as if it's a as if it's a it's a set of commandments. You see, in, in objectivism, morality has to be understood, otherwise it's not morality. It has to be accepted through reason, otherwise it's no value. So you want the child ultimately to understand the virtues and values, not just to accept them on blank, on faith, right? To understand why they're in this their own self-interest to be virtuous, why virtue is consistent with self-interest, right? The objectivist virtues, not again, conventional morality. The virtues of conventional morality and the virtues of objectivism are not the same. The, 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 in many respects, you know, some cases diametrically opposite. But even when talking about honesty, I think the focus is very different when we talk about honesty and objectivism and honesty in the, in the kind of conventional culture. Okay, so let, let's take that example. Yeah. So where are the, because you and I agree, I think, a lot on values, and we're coming yeah. from very different sure. points of view. And that obviously makes me think, okay, so is selfishness properly understood just code for morality that we all sort of basically get? Uh, and that morality doesn't spring from nowhere, right? That gets back to my original point. But sure. with that said, where do you think the distinctions lie between conventional morality sure. and, and objectivist morality? And I don't really mean on a philosophical level. Let's take some practical examples yeah. of where you think there's yeah. a difference. Well, first, let me say, I don't think most people are moral from an objectivist perspective. I don't think they act morally. So, so yes, they might not lie, but I don't think lie, that's enough. I think to be fully moral, you have to understand why you're not lying, right? You have to understand what, what the cause, and you have to understand that it's in your self-interest. So I think unless you're acting in your self-interest, you're not being fully moral. Um, second, I, I think that morality requires you to actually think, I mean, really think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and analyze it. And not just when it comes to my career choice, which everybody accepts, but in every aspect of your life, actually figure out, is this the right thing to do? And by what standard is, is, do I determine what is right? That's what morality, the objectivist morality requires. And objectivism doesn't have right. rules. It has a methodology it has universal rules, but you have to follow a certain methodology in order to attain them. And much of the universal rules are about methodology. So let's take honesty. For objectivism, the most important part about honesty is a commitment to facts, a commitment to reality. And therefore, the person that it is most important for you to be honest with, to be moral, is yourself. So lying only comes in later. First, you have to... A commitment to rationality means a commitment to facts, a commitment to reality, a commitment to what's true. And that means a commitment to my own mind, a commitment to my own judgment. It means a commitment to me not evading and not pretending and not using my emotions to guide me, but a commitment to my own reason. That's what honesty to me means. And yes, 
By extension, that means I shouldn't fake to other people because if I'm not faking to myself, then I shouldn't fake to other people and getting a value on the basis of something fake is undercutting my own reason, my own productiveness, my own self-esteem. It, it undercuts who I am as a human being. So I don't lie to other people because it's bad for me, right? Because it's not good for my long-term success as being a human being. I mean, I could go on, you know, lying doesn't work. Lying is, is right. it's just a stupid strategy, right? It's stupid, self-interested strategy. But the fundamental is don't lie to yourself. The fundamental is facts, reality, evidence. That's what the virtue of honesty means in objectivism. And the orientation in conventional morality is always towards the other. Conventional morality doesn't talk about how you should treat yourself. Conventional morality, for the most part, talks about how you should treat other people. In objectivism, how you should treat other people is important, but it, it, it comes as a consequence of how you should treat yourself. It comes as a consequence of what it means to pursue your own, uh, your own, uh, your own life and your own happiness. Uh, and the virtue that captures how you should treat other people in, in objectivism is, is the virtue of justice. You should treat people in a just way. And what does justice mean in this context? It means how they deserve to be treated. And what does that mean? It means you know, how moral they are, what kind of value do they represent to you, and what kind of value are they, do they represent in the world out there. So, it, Is that a misread of, of conventional morality? Meaning, I mean, going all the way back to the, the golden rule, there's a, the basic notion that you shouldn't treat others the way you wouldn't want to be treated yourself, which I guess is sort of an aspect of selfishness. But, but yes, but it's, it's all about other people. It starts with other people. How, how, how should I treat other people? I say forget about other people for a minute, right? Morality is about how you should treat yourself. And, and how you treat other people is an aspect of how you treat yourself. You treat yourself. Now, in Hebrew, imlaw anili mili, right? Right. Which is, which is a, a... From Kirkevo, yeah. Yes. You start, Ethics of the Father, for yes. folks who don't speak Hebrew. You, you start with yourself. You start with what is good for me. And then from that comes how you should treat other people and what that... The, the golden rule, uh, you should treat other people the way you want to be treated yourself, which is the Christian golden rule, the Jewish golden rule is a negative. The you rule, shouldn't right. treat, which I think is, is healthier. Yeah, the, the Jewish I one is healthier agree, than the Christian I one. I have my biases. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, philosophically, I think it's healthier. Um, but it certainly is the same, uh, th this idea that, you know, why, why be just? The reason to be just is because you want to surround yourself with people who are adding value to your life because that'll make your life better. And you want to distance yourself from people who hurt your values. So again, it's selfish. Justice is a selfish value. I don't want people who are gonna hurt me. I want them to keep them away. So treating them the way they deserve. So the framework is completely around what is good for me as a rational human being over the long run, you know, over my entire life. And, and thinking about that. And once you think about that, then there's no conflict between the short run and the long run. Um, so, you know, today I don't think about lying or not lying because, right, it's, it's, I've, I've induced it. it. Right. I've, I've looked around the world and I, I've seen it. I read it and I read, but I didn't take it just on faith. I, I then looked around and I said, yeah, I can see what happens to liars. I, I can see what it, what it does and I know what it does to my own mind. The other thing that lying does is I believe the, the human mind's an integrating machine. We want to see connections between everything. We want to, we want to integrate everything. I mean, I mean, part of what knowledge is, is really the integration of facts. And when you put lies into your mind, when you put falsehood into your mind, and when you lie to other people, in a sense, you're putting a falsehood into your own mind, your mind's going to integrate it. And it's going to mess up your own ability to think and be rational. And, and there's a term in computers, garbage in, garbage out. 
the last thing you want is to put garbage into that, this amazing thing that we have, this amazing mind that we have, right? Because it'll screw up your ability to be rational and therefore to pursue your own happiness and to achieve your own happiness. So it, 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 it's too in life, facts, reality, reason are too important to me to deceive myself or anybody else. Okay, so in one second, I'm going to ask you our final question. I want to ask you how objectivism, these, these very deep and interesting ideas, map onto contemporary American politics. So from the sublime to the ridiculous. But first, if you want to hear Yaron Brooks' answer, you have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. To subscribe, head on over to dailywire.com. Click subscribe. You can hear the end of our conversation there. Yaron, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for stopping by. It's a lot of fun. Good to see you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Matt Walsh Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Knowles Show, and my show, The Ben Shapiro Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is directed by Mathis Glover and produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Colton Haas. Our guests are booked by Caitlin Maynard. Post-production is supervised by Alex Zingaro. Editing by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromino. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.